0: Welcome to Market Scale Science. I'm your host Sean Heath, and today is part one in a three-part series: a conversation with Hunter Gabbard, a PhD candidate for the University of Glasgow and the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. Hunter, how are you today? I'm good, Sean. How are you doing? I have to say, I'm quite pleased and a little bit surprised that you signed up for another conversation with me. You're a very brave man. Oh, I had I had such a great time last time that day, and I thought we might brave the waters uh, again, so. <laughs> So when I found out that we were going to have the opportunity to have a series of conversations, I started kicking around some titles. And let me know what you think about this one. How Patient is Hunter Gabbard? That one's pretty catchy, right? So today I want to start off with just the basic concept of human learning. Talk to me a little bit about how something goes from an idea to research to somewhat of established knowledge.
1: Yeah. So I think uh, so. First, to sort of understand that, you have to kind of understand. Uh, yeah. So how do how do you, how do humans learn? So I think uh, first you have to pose uh, to someone like a question, right? And um, once they've been posed the question, um, then they'll go back and they'll they'll try and you know do some research on it or whatnot, and they'll come back with an answer. Um, but the thing is, when you try and do the same thing with uh, when you're trying to teach a machine. To uh, to think the same way as a human, is a very it has a it has a, it has a lot of has there are many problems uh, when you're trying to do that and one of the biggest ones is um so you have to give the machine a question the machine can't just uh come up with a question on its own you have to give it a a problem to solve whereas with a human um if you um are like say a scientist um you're not necessarily going to get um you're not going to be told what questions to answer. Right. Um, so a lot of the times the best scientists in, in the world, you know, are, are, are those that are very, very um, creative and are able to sort of come up with their own questions on their own. Um, but uh, yeah, with machine, you have to sort you have to tell it um, what it is it has to solve. Um, and so we haven't really got around to the point, at least in machine learning um, where uh, we, they're, they're able to do that yet. Um, so yeah, and if, if someone could figure that out, um, you'd uh, you'd be a very very rich person. Um, but but uh, yeah, so that's, I think that's the main difference is, um, you know, I think we're we're able to ask those questions, whereas you have to ask those, you have to come up with a problem for the machine to solve.
0: Now, as you mentioned, one person gets a question, they test that question, then they report their results, and then that process repeats itself over and over and over until there's a large gathering of data that then can be looked at, observed, and it becomes established knowledge. Machine learning can take that process and accelerate it exponentially, but one thing that machine learning can't do, that humans do naturally, is look for shortcuts, machines don't really take the initiative to look for shortcuts when they're trying to solve a problem, do they?
1: Um, so yeah, it depends on how you define a shortcut. Um, so yeah, so they, they, they can... Um, so one way that you could take a shortcut with some of the machine learning algorithm, um, essentially uh, the reason that it's so much faster is that like most of the, the power it takes to, to say try and solve a problem on like a normal either a normal computer program or like a normal human brain, you know, or we, we kind of like have sort of a, a, a computer up there, um, is that, you know, um, a machine learning algorithm is sort of able to get all that, like computing power and, and the, 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 the time it takes to do all that, it sort of gets it all done at the very beginning when it, when it sort of trains itself over and over and over again on some problem that you're trying to get it to solve. And then once it's been trained on a very, very specific problem, you then just say, "Okay, I'm going to feed it some new stuff that's never seen before," and then out will pop the answer. Um, but the thing is, once you've trained it on that one problem, it's sort of it's sort of set in its ways, and um, you don't necessarily have to adjust anything. It'll just you just sort of feed information in, and out pops an answer right away. Um, so it's you can imagine it's like um, if you're like uh, um, I guess I, I don't know if this would work, but if you're panning for if you're panning for gold or something, and say you have like several several different like sifter filters or, or whatever. Um, and then you pour on top of like the first sifter a bunch of dust and rock and stuff, and maybe there, there's maybe there's some gold in there somewhere. Um, what you do is maybe you move, you adjust the size of the filter. You, you mean the holes are a little bigger in the in the top one, and they're a little smaller in the second and the one below it. And then you keep adjusting, moving it back and forth. Each one of these filters. So there's like multiple of these little sand filters or something. Um, once you're done adjusting those filters, you can then say, okay, the the machine learning algorithm or whatever it is you're, you're training is trained, and then once that's fixed, if you see like if you have a new like bucket of uh, of uh, of dirt with some gold dust in it or something, you throw it onto this sifter thing again, you don't have to move those around anymore. Um, and so it's a lot quicker to get your whatever you want out at the end. So it's basically a constant series of
0: layers of if then statements.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. Basically, it's just a bunch of filters. Um, And this is with a, so this particular variant of deep learning I'm I'm referencing, it's a deep learning, which uses multiple layers. There are all different kinds of uh, variants of machine learning um, out there. Um, So there are some that like are are really, really simple. um, Some that are a little more complex, like generative adversarial networks, um, which are are really, really strange uh, things. They sort of, um, the way I like to think of them is, uh, it's sort of like a cops and, and counterfeiters kind of game um, where you have two of these machine learning AI networks, um, two separate ones, and they're kind of competing one against the other. Um, one is the counterfeiter and the other one's, called, I guess, the cop. So the counterfeiter is basically, in this analogy, he's trying to he's trying to make like fake Picassos, right? And then the cop, the other network, is trying to figure out whether or not what the the, the counterfeiter made was real or fake uh, Picasso painting. Um, and so what you do is you just, and the, the thing is that when you, when, all you feed into this uh, this counterfeiter neural network, you just feed it a bunch of noise. That's it, that's it. It's all you, you just feed it in noise. There's nothing else, you just feed it in noise and out will pop something. And then what the comp will see is they'll say, okay, I, I see what the, what the counterfeiter just made. I'm gonna look over here at this pile of real Picasso paintings or images of Picasso paintings I'm compare what the, what this guy made to the set of paintings over here, the real Picasso paintings. And I'm going to try and figure out which one's which. And if he, if, if he gets it right, gets a reward. If he gets it wrong, he gets a penalty. And then the counterfeiter will then know when that, uh, when that cop has gotten it right or wrong. And then it'll also get reward if it's able to fool him or not. Um, and then they just kind of compete one against the other and they keep training over and over and over and over again. Um, until they get better and better, and better. It's like, it's my, very much like, you know, sort of Darwinian, like, uh, you know, adversarial evolution, like sort of thing. Um, so they're really, really cool. They're very interesting. And you don't need many of these Picasso paintings to really, you know, train them. Um, so they're really, really powerful. Um, and they can make all kinds of weird things. Uh, I know some people like Google or, or whatnot, like, uh, I think they fed it like a bunch of images of volcanoes. And then it was able to come up with new pictures of volcanoes that you know, have never made before. I think you've probably seen, you may have seen like these little dreamlike image things that uh, that you've seen somewhere on Google um, where they're able to sort of like come up with new images of cats and dogs. And this all this really weird, psychedelic, swirly stuff. Um, but that's a, that's, a, that's a generative adversarial network. That's what I. And so there's um, they're really, really fascinating things. But they're all different kinds of variants of machine learning out there. Um so yeah, and it's it's very much um, uh, you know it's a very very hot topic right now. One of
0: the interesting things that you are doing with machine learning at the LIGO scientific collaboration is you're applying those principles and those processes to more in depth study. Of black holes. And I think with the recent passing of Stephen Hawking, it's very appropriate that we talk about black holes today. How is machine learning opening up some avenues of study for you with regard to black holes?
1: Yeah. So, um, in terms of, uh, so how so, what we do at LIGO is we, we try and look for these things called uh, gravitational waves, um, which were predicted by Einstein uh, or were predicted in Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, in 1916 so well over 100 years ago now um and uh so you can get these from all different kinds of objects uh you can get these from that from very very violent uh, events so such as like the merger of two uh, neutron stars or uh in this case the merger of say like two two black holes um and so when you get that merger you you get these these little ripples in and space time that then sort of travel out from the from from when these two massive objects collide and um, it's a, a lot of energy that it gets dispersed, but some of it gets it's, uh, dispersed in the form of gravitational waves, uh, which eventually hit us. And then they, um, we measured them using, um, a, 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 basically a very large interferometer. And what that is, is, um, essentially just a very, very, very fine ruler. Um, and so it's able to measure the bending and, and stretching and squeezing of, of space and time. Um, now the signal is very 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 tiny it's incredibly tiny um it's something it's like uh um it's like it the if you're going to try and measure the signal it's like if, as if you're you know standing on on earth and and trying to look at you know the nearest star which is like 2 light years i mean uh, alpha centauri which is several light years away and it's like trying to watch that star wiggle by the width of a human hair it, it's it's similar to that or like trying to trying to look at something wiggle by you know one ten thousandth the diameter of a proton. it's a crazy number um, so because these signals are so small, they're, they're kind of buried in, uh, in the noise of the data that we get out of the detectors. Um, so it becomes a really, really difficult, tough signal processing problem. So you, you, so it's a, it's a data analysis problem at that point. But there are a lot of other things that, that go, in, go into this. A lot of um, people work in experiment and, and theory and, and whatnot. Um, but once you get to the point where you've, you've detected, it, it's in the data, it's really hard to get it out. Um, current techniques that we use right now um, so the the thing that we use right now to try and piece these these signals out of the data, despite all the noise, um, is something called match template filtering. And I know that sounds like a bunch of nonsense, but what does it mean? Um, so it means just what it sounds like. It's uh, basically what you do is you take we we, we construct a bunch of templates, so kind of, of like cookie cutters, of different like gravitational wave waveforms that you can make using you know Einstein's field equations and something called numerical relativity and a few other things. So you basically, you run this on a big giant supercomputer You produce a bunch of these cookie cutter gravitational wave waveforms and you get like a template bank of all these different types of waveforms. And what you do is once you, you see that you found this signal, you then, you then run the, this, this bank of template waveforms, each one of them against what you see in the data. And the one that matches the best is going to give you, um, is going to give you back the signal. Um, and so that's currently what we do right now, but it takes a very long time to do this, um, and um, it could be sped up by quite a lot. Um, so one one way of doing this is, is perhaps by using uh, deep learning. Um, so what we've been working on recently, we published a paper recently in uh, Physical Review Letters um, where we talked about using deep learning, which is a, a form of machine learning that uses a bunch of bunch of neurons and, and multiple layers, and we just feed it the the raw time series from the detector and then out pops a yes, no answer telling you whether or not it's a gravity, uh, it's a, it's a black hole signal or it's noise. Um, and so what you do is you train, you train, you, you simulate a bunch of noise um, and you simulate a bunch of black hole signals and you just throw it at this, this, this neural network and um, you train it on a bunch of these for over and over and over again. And then eventually you have like basically a, a nice little tool that where if you get like a new, a new signal you just found, you can pass it through this this neural network, and out will pop an answer in you know under a second or something. Um, so it's it's very very fast. Um, although we don't make any claims to how fast it is in the paper, um, there there's still a lot of there's still a lot of work that has to be done in this sort of area. Um, but there's a lot of potential um, in this field to be trying to try and apply it towards um, uh, searching for gravitational waves. So I think the main focus of our work has been trying to show that this, this is this is definitely a viable tool um to be used in the in the community and uh there should definitely be much more um investigation into um how effective it, it might be um so yeah and that, that's that 's basically what i 've been working on so far so it 's a very exciting time this is um this, this uh, machine learning applied to um the search for gravitational waves is 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 definitely ramping up uh right now so it 's a yeah it 's very very exciting so I have a side question about the filter slash
0: cookie cutters yeah yeah so you're able to filter out the black hole noise from the other noises. Mm. Are you able to use the other noises that you filtered out to build maybe a, an encyclopedia or some sort of catalog that you could then use to maybe determine the source of the
1: origin of that sound somewhere down the road? Oh, that's a, that's a brilliant question. Um yeah, so there's a, there's a whole group in LIGO, um, and this is what I used to do work in actually quite a lot of um, before I moved into um, uh, looking for, uh, directly looking at like uh, for signals. Um, so it's called the detector characterization group, and what they do is their whole the whole focus of the group, well, not the whole focus, but a large focus of the group is to try and look for um, these glitches in the detectors. Um, and they're actually so there's um, there's several machine learning uh, projects out there right now uh, that are trying to do just that. Um, one of them is called Gravity Spy, um, and it's a really neat project. It's it's uh, done it's being done at Northwestern right now. Um, so I think it's being run under Scotty Coughlin, Michael Zevin, and a few others over there. Um, and essentially, what they do is um, if you have ever been on Zooniverse, I don't know if you've if you've heard of it uh, before. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's a really, it's really, I think it started out as, as a ga- galaxy catalog, uh, sort of thing online. Um, and, uh, and, and, what it, what it, what the, so what gravity spy does is it's basically like a glitch catalog of all the different glitches and LIGO. And they put up in this really cool looking, um, like sort of, it looks like a heat map kind of image, but we, we call it a spectrogram, um, but it, it basically looks sort of like a heat map in a way. Um, and so what you do is just get all these really crazy images of different glitches in the detector. And what, what it does is it, it uses crowd um, like crowdsourcing to try and classify which one of these are, are signal and which one of these are or, so which one of these are what, what kind of, what types of noise there are. Um, and so you'll you'll feed it to a bunch of these people and they'll they'll sort of go through. And it's kind of like a game, you know. You you get like you you rank up and stuff as you get better and better um and then what they do is they take all this information from this this crowdsourcing project and they just they feed it into uh into a neural network a deep neural network and they use that as sort of like as partially as as some training um information for their deep neural network um to classify glitches into different types um, which is really really important um it's very important to understand you know um, where the, and, and once you can class from different types, you can then try and figure out, you know, where, where do these glitches come from? Um, how did they – because the, the detectors are very, really complicated instruments. I mean, there's um, over hundreds of thousands of different sensors uh, within, this, within, within the detector. Um, so it's a very, very difficult job um, trying to, to, to do this noise hunting. And if you can find all these different noise sources, you then make it that much more likely that you'll be able to uh, make these, these uh, great scientific discoveries. Um, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's enough credit that goes towards, uh, people that, that, do that, that work, um, because it's very, very, very important. Um, you maybe get more glory in the, uh, in the, in the search side, but I think, you know, it, a lot of the really, really good work that's going on is, is in this sort of area. Well, you know, everybody says the rock stars of science
0: are the quantum theorists. Although I don't know if I necessarily agree with that but that's what they say.
1: Everybody wants to be a theorist.
0: (laughs) I just had one more question or point that I wanted to talk to you about today, and that is the growing collaboration between the physical sciences and computer scientists. It seems like such a natural fit. Do you find that we're moving a little more
1: towards the spirit of collaboration and cooperation? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so I think I, I, that would, it would be nice um, to to have, uh, yeah, much more collaboration uh, between the, the two groups. Because um, I feel, yeah, I feel like um, a lot of times um, uh, physics. Is, uh, so in, in terms of like right now um, in machine learning application towards gravitational wave astronomy, um, yeah, we're we're using techniques that have been around for a little while. So the the current thing I'm working on is, is using the generative adversarial networks that I was, I was talking about earlier. Um, this was an idea that was proposed by Ian Goodfellow, who's a, a researcher over at Google Deep Brain, or Google Brain, sorry, um, in 2014. Uh, so, you know, well, well, about four years ago now. Um, so this is, this is a bit old news to a lot of the people in the, in the computer science community, um, along with other techniques like convolutional neural networks have been around for a very long time, uh, deep learning has been around for a while. It's gotten more, um, uh, uh, more, uh, focus on, uh, from the, from the, for the media recently. Um, but you know, that that's partly due to, you know, uh, an increase in the, uh, and the computational power of, uh, of GPUs and, um, other such things. And, and, uh, so, you know, these ideas have been around for a very long time and, uh, yeah, I think it would be good to have, have more collaboration between the two because um, uh, I, mean, I think that way you, you get to make these discoveries that much more quickly. And, um, you know, uh, and I think that would be great if
0: you, if you could do that. Well, Hunter, I think anybody who knows me would attest to the fact that I believe that learning faster is always better. <laughs> Now, I want to tell you that I'm taking this series of conversations with you as a personal challenge to see if I can run out of smart questions before you run out of smart answers. And I have to say, my money's on you. I believe in you, Hunter Gabbard. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, we'll see about that. Today I've had the pleasure of a conversation with Hunter Gabbard, once again a Ph.D. candidate from the University of Glasgow and the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. Hunter, thanks so much for taking the time, my friend. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's a lot of fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the Market Scale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.